if you're in a predominantly black nation, colorism is definitely a thing. So there is prejudice based on where you are on the skin tone chart, sure. But in terms of just being black, that's not a conversation. The bigger issue is who are your people? They want to know what region of the country or what region of the continent or what region of the world you're coming from. Because that's really how people categorize themselves. And I always say that we all have different ideas about our own blackness depending on where we were raised and the environment we were raised. It's just a reaction to the rea society you live in. I, I think it's one of the greatest privileges I've had. There is something to be said about having your blackness affirmed. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Forum, the podcast that aims to elevate and affirm the voices and the stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman trying to thrive here in the midst of a global pandemic in Barcelona. Welcome back and thank you for tuning in if this is your first time. You are in for a treat. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for following the podcast across social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you so much for tagging the podcast in different comments. I really appreciate that. And as you all know, podcasting is not free. It requires time, resources, and money. If you enjoy this podcast, please support this podcast. You can support this podcast in two different ways. One is monetary and the other is non-monetary and both are equally appreciated. So the monetary ways you can support this podcast is by becoming a Patreon subscriber to the podcast Patreon. So just go to www.patreon.com slash flourish and you can become a subscriber to the podcast at any tier that feels comfortable for you. There are a variety of benefits of becoming a Patreon subscriber, so go ahead and check that out. You can also contribute to the podcast via Cash App at dollar sign flourish foreign. And if you have a business that is in alignment with this podcast and you would like to take out an ad on this podcast, you can actually do that as well. If you're interested in doing that, go ahead to the Flourish in the Foreign website, www.flourishintheforeign.com. Go to the contact page and shoot me an email and you can advertise your business on the podcast. On to the non-monetary ways of supporting this podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please review and rate the podcast. It helps people find the podcast organically in searches, but also when they find the podcast, they know this is a legitimate podcast and they should listen and listen to these stories of black women. So please, if you have not rated and reviewed the podcast, go ahead and do so now. Also, please continue to support the podcast by tagging the podcast in any kind of podcast call that's on social media. The podcast has been tagged in several threads. That's awesome. Please continue doing that. If you have a favorite blog or a favorite writer, please send the podcast to them and have them check it out because really that is a way that more people are going to learn about the podcast and love the podcast as much as you love it and as much as I love it too. All right, that's it for the support portion of the podcast. On to the next story. Today we have Amanda, who is an incredible woman, as you will soon find out. And she is also the founder of the amazing website and this amazing overall resource, The Black Expat. I'm going to let Amanda tell you all about it. My name is Amanda Bates, founder of The Black Expat. I am 40. Woohoo! Got out of my dirty 30s and now I'm in my 40s. And hometown's a tricky question because I'm a third culture kid who grew up in multiple places. Now I am in Raleigh, North Carolina. I was born in Washington, D.C. My family originally came from Cameroon, which is a country in Western Africa. My first 
international flight was at the age of two, <laughs> and that was going with my mom to visit her family in Cameroon. We moved to North Carolina during that period because of, of professional opportunities and education my parents had. And then at the age of 10, my parents decided to repatriate or return to their home country. And that would be a massive pivotal experience for me as far as it comes to looking at the world globally because my parents came from a country where the majority the country is francophone or french speaking and they were actually part of the english minority and my parents came from two separate tribes they did not speak their tribal languages to each other i as a result didn't really learn either of them because they spoke it to their family members but not in the household my parents story really wasn't different from many stories that you'll hear from folks who are children of first and second generation african and caribbean immigrants my parents like many folks from the continent their countries, they were in the post-colonial phase. Their countries, at least in paper, were no longer under the management of the British, the French, the Germans, the Italians, the Belgians, Spaniards, whatever the persuasion was. Many of them looked at that period as an opportunity to go to the U.S. to further their education because that was the thing, that the, the hallmarks of education and, and opportunities were in these countries. And so my parents, like everybody else, had an opportunity. My mom had an uncle here and... They came in the 70s <laughs> and it, it was very typical and it's still the story of many an immigrant kid or the kid of immigrants. They come here for a better life, better opportunity for their children to have better opportunities. And then sometimes it's unspoken, but many of the times they want you, the offspring, to have more than they had. And then maybe even go back to the home country and kind of take some of your knowledge and, and, and skill set with you. My parents, very typical, came. They were educated, they furthered their education here, but I think that they got to a point like many other of their peers where they were like, okay, I see myself being here for a period, but then I wanna go back. It was pretty common actually when you look in the late 80s, early 90s, where a lot of folks who had immigrated to the US in, their, in the 60s and in the 70s, maybe even in the early 80s said, okay, now I want to go back to my home country. You got to imagine leaving somewhere because you want to better yourself and then thinking to yourself, okay, but now I want to build up my country. I don't want to build up someone else's. Pretty common. People have this philosophy that they wanted to go back, that they wanted to have a part in their country's future. For other people, quite frankly, living in the U.S. can be hard. I mean, you're away from your family, you're away from your culture, you're away from what you know. There are all these other external factors you're dealing with. And to them, honestly, it, it just was a lot more desirable to go back to where they knew and, and, and where they were comfortable. I think it was a mixture of all those things. When they decided to return to the country, they actually moved to the capital city of Yaoundé, which is francophone, which they had never lived before and was different from where they had grown up. I moved with my family there and I could probably talk all day about the nuances of going from being a minority and, and coming from an immigrant family in the US, moving to a country where you're now in the majority as far as race is concerned, and the nuances of class because class and quite frankly passport privilege because I had an American passport and my mother was working for the US government at the time. I went to international schools and had access that a lot of local Cameroonian children didn't have. And just even growing up in an environment where it was in an international environment because of what brought people's parents there at that school, whether they were diplomats, missionaries, or whatever, that really kind of colored a lot of my middle and high school years in terms of how I saw the world and what I could do and what I could see and where I could go. And I spent some summers in the US, but I spent pretty much seventh through 12th grade living in Sub-Saharan Africa and then came back to the States to go to a really large state institution, which is actually the one I work at now. But I, once again, was a kid who'd grown up black abroad and then came to the US that has a very particular racial history and identity and story. I wanted to know 
how Amanda felt moving back to Cameroon at 10 with her parents. I think I handled it about as well as anything when you tell a 9 or 10 year old. Not well. <laughs> because I think anytime you move a child from what they know and are comfortable, especially the older they are, the harder it is. And I, I think the more and more I talk to third culture kids, i.e. kids who've grown up between cultures, that's the case because there's a separation, there's an anxiety. I mean, we go through this as adults, but you're processing different at a younger age. For me, it was, oh, okay, we're going on this adventure, we're going on this adventure. And then it was really hard when I got there because once again, now I've left a country which is quote unquote deemed developed, has a certain way of living. And then I go to a country that is quote unquote developing. Things are really different. There is not a McDonald's on the corner. <laughs> the power goes out regularly. There are some massive mosquitoes, which we have mosquitoes here, but mosquitoes there could give you malaria if the right one bites you. Why are there geckos in the house? These little lizards. <laughs> I mean, here people keep them as pets. There they just roam freely because that's just what they do. Now, once I got over shrieking over the fact that there were geckos everywhere, I realized they're actually really helpful in the circle of life in the sense that they eat the mosquitoes. But it was a massive culture shock. It was because you go from a place where you didn't necessarily see folks who look like you everywhere. I mean, even if you live in an all black community in the US, you don't necessarily see all black TV commercials. <laughs> you don't necessarily see these subliminal messages where the main characters are black. It was something to be in a place where everyone was black. Now, what was hard was, of course, at the time I didn't speak French. And of course, I had a level of privilege, which I couldn't articulate because I was young, that a lot of kids didn't have there. I had a ton of privilege just by being the American kids. I wanted to know how she dealt with being and feeling different among her family she didn't know the language and some of the cultural nuances. When you think about family, and I, I don't know if we ever really talk about this enough as black folks. For any of us that is first, second, third gen, whatever it is, it is something when you do look like everybody, but you don't have the same social mores or the same cultural context. If you're the cousin who lived abroad or lives abroad, and then you come back and all the other cousins, they all know each other because they all grew up the same way and they all speak the language. Language is powerful. That I know we don't talk about enough, but language is really powerful. That is one of the things that really ties a community, a tribe, a clan, wherever you are in the world. If you don't speak it or you don't speak it well, and that's the predominant way your family communicates, you do feel like you're still on the outside. And then I think the thing that doesn't help, and I will say I did not experience this as much as I have talking to other black folks in different scenarios, but if on top of that, you in, in whatever the colloquial term is for wherever you are, where it's usually used for a white person or a foreigner, you get called that by your family, that can be really painful because we're talking about things that are completely out of your control. When folks are like, well, why don't you speak the language? Well, <laughs> if your parents didn't teach it to you and you're not around people who speak the language, I don't know what eight-year-old or 10-year-old or 15-year-old or even 19-year-old goes out and says, I'm gonna learn this one language that is only really spoken by a certain group of people from a certain part of the world and there's nobody I can really talk that language with except for my parents or my siblings. So. Unless you have parents that are really intentional to ensure that some of these cultural traditions and, and communication tools and nuances, you don't always get these things and it becomes very apparent when you meet with other family members. And, and, and sometimes, to be honest, I don't even really blame parents because when you think about them leaving their own cultural identity and entering into a new place, Sometimes that's not necessarily the priority. Sometimes it's just like we are trying to survive in this new country where we don't have the ties that we had before. And, and that's not necessarily the first thing we think of. And in addition, I think if you are a black person who comes from a country 
that because of colonialism, you already speak whatever the official language is of the country you're moving into. If you are Jamaican, you speak English and you move to the US or Canada or Britain, you may not necessarily be like, okay, I'm gonna make sure my kid speaks Patois as well because they already can kind of communicate where they are. It's completely fascinating, I think, when I look back at my own experiences where I was fortunate to have some cousins that were super cool. And, and honestly, cousins were the least of my stress points because kids are kids. I, I would say it'd probably be the extended aunts and uncles who are just like, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that or you can't make this. And it makes you feel like, what did I do wrong? Or almost a sense of shame. But the truth of the matter is you were a kid. And if it wasn't shared to you and it wasn't taught to you, I think it's absolutely mind-boggling that you would assume that a child would know how to do something when they're not exposed to it. After growing up in Cameroon for seven years, Amanda decided to return to United States for university. And I was interested in knowing if she experienced a culture shock returning to United States. The high school I went to at the time really prepped you for both an American system or a British system. I pretty much knew I was going to come to the States. I was an American passport holder. That was what I knew more than anywhere else, or at least I thought I knew. It was pretty clear to me. My parents had American-style education. I knew I was going to do that. Now, the crazy part is, remember, this is pre-social media. When I was thinking about where I wanted to go, I had some geographical restrictions. My mother already said I couldn't go west of the Mississippi. That was out. And then I had this romanticized idea that I wanted to go to an American college and I wanted the full American experience with the football team and all the things that you see that is stereotypically an American college. And that was because my high school at the time was really small. My graduating class at that time was 15 students, okay? I went to the largest college in the state of North Carolina, which was clocking in at 28,000 students. I would like to say there was some rationale to why I picked the school I did, and I think it was just based on media and what I thought my college experience would be. As you can imagine, at the end of high school for anybody else, it's already a stressful time because there's a lot of change. I think there's the added challenge of the fact that everyone's going to leave. But is it just that you're leaving something you're familiar with? It's the people that you know are also leaving. It's not you can come back to that. And I know that for me, it was a ton of anxiety because there's some folks I had been going to school with at least for the past six years. All of a sudden, I'm coming back to a country that I hadn't lived in since I was about to go into fifth grade. And now I'm going into college. And I went to college at 17, a little bit younger, <laughs> did not know a lot of things. My mother had worked at Duke when I was younger and she had an old friend who still lived in an area. And oh, when I was a kid, I was really close to my mom's friend's daughter. We were the same age, kind of the same story. They were from Sierra Leone. My family was from Cameroon. We were similar right, in that way. My mom got reconnected and was like, all right, let's go meet up with them. And I would go meet up with my old friend. And let me tell you, that was the weirdest experience ever because when we were eight, nine, ten, seven, six, whatever, we were very much on a similar trajectory. We were now teenagers and we were not on the same trajectory because remember, during my middle and high school years, I've moved to Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm living there. She's living in Durham, North Carolina. And I sounded different, I looked different, I dressed different. I mean, I didn't really think her friends were that great. We were like night and day. And it was weird because I always thought to myself, I wonder if this is what I would have been like if I'd stayed in the States <laughs> in the same town. And so, you know, all my stories referenced living in Africa, which was basically almost like saying you've grown a second head. Everyone's just sort of looking at me like, you're different, like I don't understand what you're talking about. And I know that for me, people are making cultural nuances I didn't understand because remember, I had been living in Africa. And I mean, instant messenger was just coming on the scene. So there are, even to this day, there are shows and things that people reference. And even though I have this American accent, I go, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was in Sub-Saharan Africa. That first year was terrible. It was, it was terrible. I think I was working out being a third culture kid. I was away from my family. I was working out what it means to be black in this space. 
in a way that I had to think about differently because I lived in Africa, so I never thought about my race. I was aware about my class and I was aware about passport privilege and nationality and to a certain degree, gender. I mean, everybody's black. Nobody calls anyone black because everyone's black. And then all of a sudden, blackness kind of comes to the forefront in a way that I hadn't had to think about until that time. If you're in a predominantly black nation, colorism is definitely a thing. There, there, is there prejudice based on where you are on the skin tone chart? Sure. But in terms of just being black, that's not a conversation. It is assumed. Really where the conversation for folks, which is what I got because I look like a member of the local population, the bigger issue is who are your people? And when they say who are your people, they want to know what tribe you are. The tribe takes to the forefront. They want to know what region of the country or what region of the continent or what region of the world you're coming from. Because that's really how people categorize themselves. They don't categorize themselves by color. When you're in a place where everyone is black, the police are black, the president's black, leadership's black, you don't think about it in the same way. And I always say that we all have different ideas about our own blackness depending on where we were raised and the environment we were raised. And if you were raised in a highly racialized society, that's gonna be one of the first things that comes to the forefront. And it's not right or wrong, it's just a reaction to the rea society you live in. So I always say this to my friends, I, I think it's one of the greatest privileges I've had. Even the challenges I had as a kid or as a teenager, there is something to be said about having your blackness affirmed. And what's wild is that as a kid and as a teenager, you don't think about it, but as an adult, I can definitely see the root of that. I can see the blessing in it because there are things that the way I see myself, which honestly, I know because I was in an environment where everyone was black and I did see black success on different scales, that it doesn't really bother me what other people say because I'm honestly, my blackness is cool. It, it has nothing to even do with you, literally. You could be in the room, you could not be in the room, my blackness is still cool. On one hand, growing up in that environment, like I said, it was, it, it was affirming. You come to the US and it's wild because I think for anyone who's black and the black is hyphenated, <laughs> or you're American type, Jamaican, Trinity, whatever, Cameroonian, Ghanaian, I think about Cameroon all the time. If someone was walking down the street and we saw their features, the first thought is, oh, they're probably this tribe, this tribe, this tribe. Whether it's true or it's not true, whatever. But in the US, if any of us are walking down the street, the first thought is not, oh, you're Panamanian. Oh, your people are Bahamian. Oh, your people are Ghanaian. The first thought is there's a black chick or a black dude walking down the street. As a kid, I don't think I was as emotionally prepared as I thought it was going to be. Now. This is not to say that my parents had not had a conversation about race with me and about the US because they had, because honestly, it would be unwise not to. They had lived in this country. They were fully aware. <laughs> they were not living in some kind of bubble. They were fully aware. But it's, a, it's one thing to hear about it. It's a different thing to experience it. It is absolutely different. And I think that... The other thing that kind of jumped out to me, which is part of the reason why I started the Black Expat, is even this conversation about blackness. It's monolithic. And, and I think that's frustrating because in reality, it's not. And this is not even monolithic in predominantly black countries because I just went ahead and said, okay, different tribes exist and different tribes do things different. Even in the US, a black person from Oakland, California has, has some different experiences than a black person from Brooklyn or a black person from Savannah, Georgia or a black person from Houston. And, and there are regional nuances and there's regional conversations there that are very particular to that place. But what's frustrating is because of the history of this country, we've sort of just flattened the way we look at blackness. We have these things that we say that, or that we assume or that we apply. And I'm like, no, that's taking away the richness of what blackness is. I asked Amanda to talk about what exactly is a third culture kid, and she gave such a fascinating and in-depth response. And I think you'll find that the definition is far more inclusive than at least I thought. Third culture kids have been at the 
spongy term, if you will. There's a great book by Ruth Van Raken and Michael Pollack that talk about it, but essentially it's a kid who's grown up between cultures and there is a level of moving involved. They are not growing up often in their home culture and they may not necessarily be growing up in their parents' culture, but they may kind of form this third culture. Another term they add to it, which actually includes, I think, a number of other folks, especially black folks, are cross-cultural kids. If you think about a kid who their parents are from Nigeria, but they grew up in Atlanta, or maybe one parent's from Nigeria and their mom's from, from Alabama and they grew up in Atlanta, that's a cross-cultural kid. That's a kid who has been impacted by somebody's move and is living across multiple cultures. TCK, I think, is a term had been around maybe, I want to say, the 80s, but it really, really started to take off, I think, by the late 90s, getting into the 2000s. Some people thought about TCK, oh yeah, they're the kids who went to international schools and they moved every two to three years, X, Y, Z. But if that's the case, that would include, for example, black kids who moved to the U.S., they would be third culture kids, but for some reason, no one ever really thought about kids moving to the U.S. from somewhere else. They always thought about kind of going west, going somewhere else. And then for me, I get political with it. I'm like, okay, this, is a, this should include refugee kids. <laughs> because if you are a kid who was in a refugee camp in Kenya, and then you ended up in a refugee camp in Sudan, oh, you're a third culture kid. Now, some people would argue that and say they're not. And I'm like, why? Because now we're talking about choice and privilege right? Because the implication for a long time for a third culture kid was think about kids in those sending agencies. Their parents were worked in the diplomatic corps. They moved every two or three years. That's a third culture kid. Cool. No one argued that definition. But then you get a kid who's migrating because of war and conflict. And for some reason now the term doesn't apply. But once again, I'm inclusionary. I, I include all of those folks into it. And so TCK, like expat, has dealt with the underlying privilege of the term. And I can tell you the number of black people, particularly from non-Western countries, who didn't realize or didn't think that the term third culture kid or expat applied to them because they weren't Western and especially because they weren't white. But I personally have decided that all those terms apply to all kinds of black people who are moving. Amanda shared with me her experience of studying abroad in Italy as a grad student and how she felt Italy was really similar to sub-Saharan Africa. So study abroad for me was a bit of a unique experience. I did not study abroad in undergrad for the simple fact that I was going between the United States and Cameroon for holiday anyway. I personally didn't feel I, ne I needed <laughs> the experience to study abroad because I was half in the US, half not. I did study abroad while I was in graduate school the second time. When I was getting my counseling degree, I did a very short stint to Italy and First of all, I wanted to study abroad in grad school because I thought, you know what, I didn't do it in undergrad. Let me get a different experience. I had an itch to go somewhere. And I, by God, found one of two programs in the country that has a counseling um, study abroad experience. At that point, I was older. And when I got to Italy, my thought was, for real, this is like being in Sub-Saharan Africa or, or Latin America, except white people. <laughs> Because there were things about Italy that just reminded me of anywhere I'd been that was a hot climate. And I, I was with some other students who had never traveled. And it was kind of wild seeing the world through their eyes. Italy, it was an experience. I was in Tuscany. The big city in Tuscany is Florence. I stayed in a small town called Rogello. Got to see a whole bunch of T Tuscany and Umbria, the two states. We were in Assisi, we were in Siena, I just went to Florence, went to all these other places. I was in the Italian countryside <laughs> and where they make olives. And let me tell you, their concept of time is so hot climate-esque. <laughs> Meaning the bus said on the schedule, it's going to come at 930. It came at 1145 with no explanation. 
and either you got on the bus or you could be mad about it. Just the way time is oriented there, totally slower pace. The fact that people were super expressive, which completely reminded me of West Africa, as well as Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, same thing. Super expressive in the way people communicated. The fact that they were very family-oriented, as you could imagine, the way that people sort of embraced life. If you had a meal, you seriously enjoyed that meal. It was, you sit at this table, you're eating family-style, homemade, and just enjoying the conversation. And those are the things that reminded me of growing up in Cameroon, to be honest, that that loud time is of no consequence and good food and conversation. It just, it kind of brought me back to my childhood. Amanda studied abroad again in Qatar, and she really experienced a form of passport privilege that many Black Americans experience in the Middle East, a privilege that some are more comfortable with than others. At that point in my life, I was ready to transition out of my job. I was finishing up a master's in counseling. If you get a counseling degree, you have to do a practicum and an internship. I'd already done one, but I needed to do my internship. And my focus was, it was a counselor ed degree. My focus was in kind of student affairs, college counseling. And I was like, I need an opportunity to go abroad. My university uh, where I was doing my degree actually had a university uh, location in the Middle East. There's this place in Doha called Education City. There are about seven or eight American style universities there. So Northwestern, Georgetown, Texas A&M all have campuses out there. They don't replicate the full campuses that they have in the States. They replicate some of their marquee programs that they're known for. One of the things that Northwestern, for example, is known for is communications out in Doha. The programs that they offer are centered around communications and journalism. The chair of my department at the time had mentioned it and said, hey, you're finishing up. Would you be really interested in doing some time out there? They need help building up their career counseling center. My background has been in career counseling and, and other academic advising and you'd get credit for it and it'd be a crazy cool opportunity. I was like, sure. And here's the thing. It wasn't this opportunity was set up. It took a ton of work and following behind people and making a pitch and putting a proposal together. I mean, to the point where my professors weren't even sure it was gonna happen. I basically decided I was gonna go to Cutter and by hell, I got to Cutter. It was time for a change and this was a good way to do a clear change. Anytime you think I need a change, going abroad always gets you on a reset. I was able to go out to Doha and I have been and traveled to a lot of places. Let me tell you, Doha was unlike anywhere I've been. Some things were similar in terms of family-oriented, hot climate. Cameroon has a significant Muslim population, so Hearing calls to prayer were not necessarily a surprise to me, although I hadn't lived in a place where I'd heard a call to prayer in over 20 years. It kind of took me aback for a moment. But on the same hand, I had never been to a Middle Eastern country before that. And even in the Middle East, the Gulf is very different than an Egypt or a Libya or a Morocco or Algeria. Very different. It was an experience, <laughs> to say the least. One of the things that's a marker with some of those particular countries is the disparity in wealth. There's a lot of money. I've never seen and been that close to wealth in that way than anywhere else. And if anything about Qatar, something, something like 15% of the population is local. 85% of the population is from somewhere else. When I mean local, 15% of Qatar's population are Qataris and actually from Qatar. 85% are from somewhere else because they were a small nation. Once they were able to find the natural resources they did, they were able to bring in workers from all over the world, both the service industry, all the way up into engineers and, and other fields. I had never been in a place where the local population was completely outnumbered by everyone else. That being said, there was a pretty 
I don't want to call it rigid, but it was a pretty solid class system. At the top of it, it's going to be cut threes. And, and then you kind of work your way down, depending on where your passport was from. If you had an American passport or a Western passport of some sort, you were higher on the rank. And then at the bottom of it would be folks from Sub-Saharan Africa and folks who are from um, South Asia, Nepal, Bangladesh, in certain spheres. What was really hard is sort of witnessing that. And if you talk to black expats from the West, they'll tell you that to a certain degree. It's a weird place where you're really privileged, but then you can see the lack of privilege of people who have the same skin tone, but they're from a different part of the world. I guess what it is is I just had never been in a place where it had been so out in your face. And that's really hard. I'm not one of those people who's like, well, I've got mine and sucks for you. It's hard for me not to internalize a little bit of that, especially because quite frankly, I came from a family of mixed passport holders. I'm the first one in my family who had an American passport. And I had it by virtue of being born in DC. But I had definitely flown with my mom and, and other folks who they did not have American passports at the time being aware of how you are treated differently based on where your passport is from is something I'd known since I was a kid. To sort of see that play out was really uncomfortable. I wanted to know how Amanda's career progressed into the arena of college access. I fell into college access and I think the reason I was good at it, quite frankly, and the reason I got the job was that even though I was not the first one in my family to go to college, I understood what it was like for a kid to step on a campus and maybe even look like they belong and maybe even sound like they belong, but not understand what's going on. Working with particularly black students who nobody in their family had gone to college and there are these things, these cultural cues that they didn't know because it hadn't been passed down because no one in their family had done it. I got that because that was me when I came back to the States. There are things that I just got. I have always been sensitive to the fact that part of the reason that makes people feel insecure and part of the reason that makes people struggle is just that they don't have access to knowledge. I think that all the roles that I have sought and I've been a part of have been roles that make sure that people get access to things, especially for those who traditionally not have, have been told. And I, I mean, it's not a surprise. Once again, I come from a family of immigrants. My mom had to learn all these things about this country that nobody could have told her in the 70s because no one in her family had left the village. They hadn't left their hometown. It's really telling people and, and how to get the resources they need. And I absolutely can trace that back to being a kid who was moving into these spaces and didn't necessarily know what was going on and didn't know where to get information. I wanted to know more about the Black expat. I asked Amanda to share the origin story of the Black expat and what it exactly does and who it's exactly for. It started at a time where... <laughs> I wanted to encourage students to study abroad. That's really what the initial focus was. And I wanted to normalize these stories. I wanted to talk about black migration that did not necessarily have to do with something negative and did not necessarily have to do with slavery. Black people have been moving for forever, forever, forever. And it hasn't always been bad. <laughs> Every time we hear about black people moving in the greater narrative, Okay, it's the it's because of slavery or it's the end of reconstruction, great migration or whatever, or it's they're fleeing war and poverty. It's never just what these black people decided they wanted to move to Thailand. <laughs> and while those stories are important and those stories are part of our collective history and in the regional and individual histories, we talk about expatriation all the time. We never talk about black people. I was reading stuff and I kept going, this article's great, they didn't ask a black person. <laughs> this article's great, they didn't ask a black person. And finally, I was just like, I'm just gonna create something. And even the term black expat didn't realize it was gonna be that political, but 
the reason I called it the black expat is that even though early on I said black people from predominantly black countries don't necessarily call themselves black because everyone's black. But the reason I call it the black expat is that if I did not call it that, black people wouldn't be able to find it. <laughs> even the conversations I have with folks who are non-Western who said, oh, is this for black Westerners? And I'm like, no, you're included in this as well. I, I understand. You don't use the term black in terms of a descriptor of a person necessarily. But I said, if I don't put this term in there, it's going to be everybody else. And this is not to the detriment of other groups that are unrepresented or other expats in the majority. But it's just the quite honest truth is that we don't really talk about the black experience when it comes to being abroad. I mean, we talk about it now, we're seeing so much with travel, but we don't really talk about the black living abroad experience to the extent that we talk about travel. And even when we do talk about the black living abroad experience, we don't talk about it in an inclusive way because the truth of the matter is if you are a black American and you are moving to China or you are moving to Germany or you're moving to Colombia, you probably are having a different experience than if you are a black Kenyan or a Ghanaian moving to those countries. And we can't assume once again that there's that single story or the fact that we're monolithic. We also have to wrestle with the fact that depending on where your blackness comes from, it's gonna depend on the kind of experience you have. When you call your site the black expat, <laughs> in addition to the black folks you get, some people just stumble on the site because they're like, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> and then they keep reading. And you also get other expats. One of the things that I've seen is, and I've been working in expat circles for a long time. I was on a board of an organization. I've been in these communities and whatnot. My reach is most certainly beyond black people. But in many ways, we've become the site where non-black expats will come and read because once again, we can assume we're all having the same experience. Just like I said, your, your black experience is gonna depend on where your blackness comes from. Your expat experience can depend on your race as well. Not just that passport privilege, but your race. What I have found is that we get a number of white expats as well as expats of other races, but who are very interested in the stories because I think that they wanna learn and I think that they want to get better insight as to maybe what some of their peers are going through, especially stuff that they may not think about. Privilege cuts in so many different ways. I would say that, for example, if you're a white expat, one of the challenges that you may face is that people may automatically assume you're wealthy or assume you're knowledgeable in a certain area because you're white, and that may not be the case. Whereas some of the challenges often with black expats, unless they are identified as American or Canadian or British or whatever, maybe that they are overlooked because they are black, because of whatever anti-black sentiment is in that country. I think what's been fascinating have been the conversations that people in my network have been having just from the stuff that they read, because especially if you're living abroad because you were sent by a sending agency, you work for a company and they sent you abroad, I think it can only help for you to actually have a better picture of what the different types of expats are going through in your workplace or in your community so that maybe you can be a better ally. The black expat is in no way positioning itself in proxy next to, for example, whiteness. My focus of this site, honestly, is not how we are treated in comparison to other people or how like none of that it's not even in my world what i care about is the real life experience of black folks who are living this life abroad it isn't a binary thing it literally is this is what black people around the world face or these are this is the beauty in it or these are the challenges and if you happen to not be black and you're reading this site awesome but remember, you are not my main audience. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. And what I think has been interesting, because I've had those kind of frank conversations with non-black expats, and the thing I've collectively heard is, no, I really do appreciate your site because there's so much I'm learning, and I, I don't necessarily feel I have to be part of the conversation, but I'm learning. People are really good about staying in their lane when it comes to 
my sight. But knowledge is power. And when people don't have access to knowledge and they don't know, if they don't know what's out there for them, I feel like they're stymied. I mean, I will say this till I'm blue in the face. There is a great post that was written years ago where one of the writers asked this question, when's the last time you ever saw a movie on travel and it was basically centered around a young black person having a carefree holiday? You don't see yourself represented. It's really hard to go out there and do something. I mean, as much as we talk about this, to be quite frank, if you've ever been the first to conceptualize something that is new, it's really hard. For me, especially when you look at the international space, the fact that there are just so many young Black folks in general who haven't had the chance to really see Black people doing things on the international stage that matter and living their best lives and choosing to live wherever they want to live because that's what's good for them. For me, that's why I think that this site's important. I think that's why I do the work that I do in general because I want folks to feel empowered. Because if we have all these experiences but we're not empowering and educating other people, I'm not entirely sure why we're having these experiences then. What's the purpose? What's a lot cooler is if I help you figure out that you could do it and you get to have an amazing experience in Spain or Italy or Singapore and then you and I talk about it. Because then what's happened is it's not like I had something and I kept it. It's I inspired you or I showed you the way or I got you connected to a resource and now you're the better for it. My favorite story, hands down, when I was working in college access, I was working with a family. I've been working with this, this family, had six daughters, working class family. They were all making their way through college. And the mom called me because the second or third daughter wanted to study abroad. Family was from Richmond, Virginia. Look, far for them was going to New York or Atlanta, and she was suspect about that. And the daughter wanted to study abroad, and the mom's gotten all the information from the school, and she's listened to all of them. And then she called me and said, so-and-so wants to go abroad. I need you to talk me through this. And so I'm talking through with the mom, and I know, I feel you. It's terrifying. You are sending your black child across the world to a place you've never been, to an experience you've never had, and you are terrified. And I know why you call me, because you're like, she's a black woman, and at least I hear what they're saying over here, but I want to hear what you're saying. And the mom ultimately let the child go, and the the student went and she didn't tell her mom until she came back. She crossed into Morocco. She got to see some of Africa. And the crazy part is she did that and it really encouraged that student to pursue looking into Peace Corps. But even more important than that, the sister after her got to study abroad because her older sister did it. Then it became normal in that family. Super normal. Like I said, working class family. They didn't go nowhere. It became normal now that their kids go abroad. Currently, there is a lot of interest of Black Americans wanting to move abroad and work abroad. And Amanda and I talked about some of the things that we've seen in different forums, different questions being asked, and different, I suppose, methods people are thinking about taking to go abroad. And she has some advice to help y'all out. Here's the thing, <laughs> not to get biblical on anybody, but you need to have a vision <laughs> before you do anything. And that's what I would say, even if you're staying in the state. So when people are like, I'm looking for a job, okay, I'm working with a recruiter. One thing that recruiters hate is that when they ask you, what are you looking for? What do you try to do? And you go anything. That is not true. None of us would do anything. And I think that when it comes to moving abroad, you have to be even more of a planner than you are here. If you're not a great planner, you need to become one, a planner in general. And if you are a good planner, you need to become a great planner. You have to think about what do you even bring? I said it to a client this morning. This whole thing, even finding opportunities, literally is like dating. 
okay? They're feeling you out, you're feeling them out, you're trying to figure out, everyone's trying to figure out what's in it for them. You have to be very clear about what it is that you can do and what you can do well. And I think if you can ground yourself in your skill set, you then have to look and figure out, okay, the skill set that I have, first of all, is it in demand? And if it's in demand, is it in demand in a country that I want to go to? Because sometimes you have a skill set, but it's definitely not in demand for where you want to go because they either have it in abundance or it's not something that's just as developed in that particular place. One of the mistakes I see folks saying is they think to themselves, okay, I could just go abroad, I'll just teach English. And my soul cringes because <laughs> as someone who's worked in education, I have taught at some point in my career, I don't teach now. When you decide to be a teacher, you actually have to have a heart of a teacher because for me, I feel like if someone is paying money, for you to pass on education, they really don't deserve someone who's mediocre at it or is just trying to fund their travels. You're better off finding something else, especially in this day and age with the internet and, and the way remote working is a thing now. You're better off finding something that's more suited for what you can do that doesn't require you to teach. The biggest mistake I see is people making that idea of I'll do anything, but then also not having a really good idea of how much it costs to live in that country and what it's gonna to take to be safe and, and secure. I think about all the things that are happening now and if you are someone who last minute had to come back to the United States or Canada or whatever country you're from, were you financially in a place where you could do that because an emergency erupted? And, and then I've, I've seen some really wild advice kind of fly by. I, I saw one thing that made me super nervous where someone said, they were willing to teach English to go abroad, but they had a kid. <laughs> they were gonna move abroad with a teenager to go teach English. And I don't know what they thought that salary was gonna be like, but all the educators were like, oh no, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> and they'd never taught before. I just wanna get out the country. I'm like, can you get out the country with a plan though? Like, girl, no. <laughs> I asked Amanda where she saw herself in the foreseeable future and if she sees herself going back abroad and where. Am I going to be abroad somewhere? Sure. Do I know where I'm going to be abroad? Not a clue in the world. I would say that my heart right now is probably thinking somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. To me, there is a peace to it as crazy and as frustrating as that continent could be, it's 54, 55 plus countries. And my philosophy is, if you find the one that's just the right fit for you, it, I mean, it's, it's incomparable. I, I expect at some point I'm gonna be at the continent somewhere, even if it's half time, because there is a peace being around black and brown people, <laughs> to be honest. And there is a piece of not wondering whether certain things happen because of race. And honestly, there's just a piece in the fact of having all of society looking like you. Now, where it's gonna be on the continent, I'm still trying to figure that out, but I've got some places in mind where I think, my, my soul knows Western Africa probably best, but I could have love for East Africa. <laughs> I, I had the privilege maybe about three years ago and I went to Seychelles and let me tell you, <laughs> if I was independently wealthy, honestly, or just had stable internet, Seychelles would be the jam. It's gorgeous, it's an island, ain't nobody going out there looking for nothing. <laughs> the rest of the world can do whatever. It's an island culture but that internet's a little spotty. That's the downside. But I suspect I'll end up somewhere in Africa at some point. I wanted to know Amanda's personal definition of wellness and how all of her travel and living abroad had influenced her definition and practice of wellness. I'm a counselor by training, right? So, so 
So wellness is something that I think about quite a bit. I think that when it comes to wellness, wellness to be balanced, right? So wellness isn't just in one area of your life. Like if you want true wellness, you're going to look at, you're going to do a 360 view. So you're going to look at physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, what, whatever other assets or aspects are important to you and make sure that you're, you've got some peace going on because the truth of the matter is if you don't have peace in one area, it's going to be really hard <laughs> to have peace in all areas. So once again, not to get biblical on folks, but it's basically like looking at your body. And so it's basically if a part of your body is hurting, you need to go and take care of it so that the whole body can have, can be whole. That's the same thing. So if you have mental peace, which is key and is almost foundational, but you don't have like relational financial or financial peace, it's going to be really stressful. I think that one of the beauty about being internationally focused is that sometimes you find when you go to a different environment, you completely reset. I'm having more conversations in the international space is looking at what are the support mechanisms if we're talking about mental health and, 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 and mental wellness for those who are living abroad? Because just because you move somewhere doesn't mean you don't experience trauma. It doesn't mean that you don't experience grief. It doesn't mean you don't experience loss. It doesn't mean you don't experience pain. And so what are the ways that those who are living abroad can still get sort of those supports from a similar or a familiar cultural standpoint. Because if I'm living in Bangladesh or I'm living in Sri Lanka and there's a lot going on with me and I'm a black woman or I'm a black man and I'm like, let's say I'm American, I probably want to check in with a counselor who understands that framework, who understands what I'm think looking at as far as black identity, but also has sort of that international bent to it. And I think that one of the things that's really helpful is a lot of the Black groups that have come up in a lot of ways online have been sort of that way to support this idea of wellness, especially when you're thinking about being internationally based, because, man, like there are things that come up and it really just helps to have someone who you can kind of talk through these challenges and talk through these issues and know where you're coming from. It can also tell you you're not crazy or tell you you are crazy and, and help you find the resources you need. I kind of feel like if you are Black and you are a counselor and you have some interest in international work, you need to go ahead and pitch your like little sign and your shingle. Because I, I, think, I think there could be a market for you depending on where you are and how your license works. Because I do know that there's, there is one group that's there's like the International Therapist Directory and so these are folks who are accustomed to working with expats, but I guarantee you very few of them are people of color and very few of them are black people. I asked Amanda to tell me about some of the projects she has on the horizon and of course, where you all could find her. Obviously, you talked about the Black Expat, which is at theblackexpat.com. Pretty easy to find on social media. I do career coaching and consulting because part of that is my training. As I mentioned, I have a master's in counseling. I have a master's in business and my master's in counseling included career counseling work. My favorite part about doing career counseling is that I love working with career changers. I love working with individuals who are trying to get to the next level and I love looking at folks who are trying to do something out the box. If they're thinking about going international, if they're thinking about starting a business, I'm like, yes, because I love helping vision cast and get that happen. That's under Bates Consulting, which actually the website is batesatwork.com and it's on all the social media platforms. And, and really the mission behind it is to help people kind of design that career that they love and design it intentionally. If you hear everything that I'm really talking about, it's all the same thread. I want people to be intentional about their lives and I want them to do the things that makes them happy and I want them to do the things that actually empowers and enriches the planet. I, I actually get a large number of folks who are internationally focused because of the Black Expat and because of my own experiences. 
But then I get a number of people who are coming from more of a non-profit background and a helping service background because of other things in my, my professional space. Everyone is always welcome to find me there if they want to talk about their career. That's my jam. That's my other jam outside of talking about being black and living abroad. <laughs> what a fantastic story. I truly enjoyed speaking with Amanda. I learned so much and I just believe her perspective is so nuanced and it was such a pleasure to interview her and have her on the podcast. So thank you so, so much, Amanda. If you all enjoyed that podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber to the podcast and supporting the podcast so that more incredible stories of Black women living and thriving abroad can be shared. Also, this podcast is brought to you by me. Yes, Christine Job. As some of you guys learned in the previous episode, I'm a business strategist by trade. And also, I help women-led ventures get from ideation, develop a strategic execution plan, and of course, launch successfully. That is what I've been doing for the past eight years. And now I'm helping Black women and women of color who want to leverage their expertise and talent into viable and sustainable online businesses, be it freelance or consulting work. I help these women so that they can pursue a thriving life abroad. I understand that the biggest questions that most women have are around work. What kind of work will they be able to do to sustain themselves while they go abroad? And unless you're independently wealthy, which I'm so happy for you, and also support the podcast. But if you're not independently wealthy, work and career and your options are very, very important to you. You're looking for opportunities that not only will make you professionally fulfilled, but also financially abundant in whatever ways that means to you. And that is what I help women do. I have worked abroad in various capacities. I have taught English. I have landed and worked a remote job abroad. I have worked for myself and I have actually been extended an offer to work in country, which is quite a feat, might I add, in a weak economy such as the Spanish economy. So I understand all of the different kinds of angles of trying to get work abroad. And I truly, truly believe that Really, leveraging your expertise and talent into a viable online business is the way to go. It allows you to really set the course for yourself, but also allows you to earn money in the currency that you would like and with the spending power that you would like, right? So if you are interested in learning more about how I can help you leverage your expertise and talents so that you can go and thrive abroad as well, let me know. Go to my website, www.christinejobe.com and drop me a line on my contact page. You can also book a free discovery call with me to talk more about this. If you are interested, I do have to mention that I have limited capacity for this because as you guys see, your girl's working on lots of different things. So I want to help as many people as possible. Let me know if you're interested and I'd love to chat. All right. That is today's episode. Thank you again for sticking around. Thank you so much for listening and supporting. Y'all are the best. Really. You guys are the best. You guys leave amazing comments and it's so nice and so sweet. And I really appreciate y'all. So thank you so much. As always, thank you to Zachary Higgs for producing the music to this podcast. If you are looking for music for your next creative endeavor, Zachary is your guy. He can produce all types of music, whether you are pursuing your rap dreams or you are just looking for music for a presentation you're putting on or a video that you might be producing. He is your guy. I'm going to leave all of his information in the show notes below. So go check him out. And I want you all to really take care of yourself, for real. Times are strange, and I really want you all to take care of yourself, whether it be take yourself for a walk, 
unplug for a day, uh, take a nap, eat something nourishing or super yummy. Just please take care of yourself. All right, until next week. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. Just being 16 years old, staying with a German host family, being in a very small, it's called like a Kudorf. Even though my town was tiny, there were actually still Afro-Germans there. I got to learn to speak German. I got to Euro rail all over Europe with my friends. It was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And from there, I knew that I was gonna do more. My life was probably gonna be spent abroad. I felt like whole and complete. I wasn't necessarily just defined as that black girl. There was so much more depth that I was allowed to experience.